Welcome to the Everyman Upland Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Baker, along with Henry Norman. Hey, guys. And today we have a, a lot of people in the studio virtually with us. We have uh, Kara Stewart, Dallas Ingram, and James Martin. Uh, how are you guys doing? Good. Doing well. Glad to be here. <clears throat> Good to have you guys. Um, if y'all would, let's get a short introduction. Uh, Kara, would you, do you mind going first? Yeah. Um, I'm Kara Stewart and I am the master's student on this project. I graduated with my bachelor's from Mississippi state in 2021. And I started this project, um, over the summer. I did like some training stuff at tall timbers, but officially started working on this project in October of 2022. Cool. And, uh, Dallas, you want to go next? All right. I'm Dallas Ingram. I'm the state quill coordinator for Georgia Department of Natural Resources, and I'm based out of Southwest Georgia. Cool. I'm based out of Southwest Georgia, too. Yeah. <laughs> <Good> area. <laughs> it is. Nat country. Yeah, right. for sure. We do have we're, gnats. We're, we're being reminded right now the weather's heating up. And yes. They're, they're, they're <laughs> and uh, James? Yeah, I'm a professor of wildlife ecology university of georgia i've been here since 2014 uh, before coming here i was a professor at uh, mississippi state and then before that i was a phd student at university of georgia but originally from north carolina so if the accent throws you off it's awesome. oh, okay i'm from other parts of the south yeah <laughs> north of the macon dixon line that's what yeah no, that's right north of the macon dixon line that's, that's right. right um yeah, uh, so we this kind of episode has been in the works for a while. We've been emailing back and forth. It was kind of connection after connection. And one of the ways, well, where it started was we harvested a banded and collared bird. And then Henry harvested a banded and collared bird. And then we called the numbers on the bands and the collars and started meeting people and you actually have to turn the collar in so you end up meeting a person what do y'all call those technicians grad students or technicians yeah yeah and uh and so then it was like well what's the point of all this so we kind of wanted to (laughs) um we got we got curious and started looking into it and exploring and talk like talking to to different people involved with the projects and you know, got really interested because we're big quail hunters and quail are kind of struggling for the most part for the last, you know, 50, 60 years. So we're, we're very interested in seeing what we could do to kind of, to help the conservation of quail. And so we're very, we got very interested in, in getting in touch with you guys and look forward to hearing what you guys have to say about the work you've been doing. So let's, that's a good place to start. Whoa, a little hot. Um, what is the work y'all are doing? What uh, the two di- two different projects represented here, right? There's probably a lot of pro- projects represented here. Oh, okay, uh, okay, but uh, yeah, I don't know specifically which ones you want to focus on. I That's guess a, the... a, whatever your favorite <laughs> ones are. So let's start with the collars. Who's who's okay? Who's doing that? Well, we're my group, right? Yeah, yeah. So. Um, we're all involved in it, but Kara is the, uh, lead person on the ground. She's a graduate student. And so, you know, she should probably describe it in her own words, what she's doing on a daily basis. So, um, we are putting collars on the birds and we are tracking their locations a couple to several times a week. Typically it's between three to five. And we are using those locations so that we can then do vegetation surveys and figure out um, where they're hanging out and then where they're not hanging out by using these random locations. And the goal is to kind of understand these casual relationships between management actions and then the vegetation responses to those actions. And we are able to you know, see where those birds are by locating them once a day with um, a receiver in Yagi because it syncs up to their collar that mm. we put on them. Yeah, gotcha. So a little antenna, you po- it's a directional antenna that you kind of point and are mm-hmm. able to track them down. It's a little better than a bird dog, I guess. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I don't know. If, I don't know if y'all remember the old days when 
before GPS collars on dogs, they used to have telemetry. Yeah, that's collar, right. You know, yeah. Oh, yeah. bear hunters and whatnot used to have them, and you'd have to go out there and track them. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's basically the same technology we're using. Okay, gotcha. Because these are tiny little collars. I mean, they. How much yeah. does a collar weigh? Do you know that? Six, five grams, six grams, something, something like that. Okay. So it, yeah, it's less than five percent of the bird's body weight. Right, okay. and that's okay. and is that a uh, an equation? You, if if you catch a bird that is too too small for the collar, you would just you just band it. Correct. Okay. Yeah, we, we we set a threshold of five percent. There's been studies done on a lot of bird species to kind of indicate that once you get above that threshold, it may become an issue. Yeah. Oh, excuse uh, so the data, right? Like as far as predation. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you know, it's kind of if we toss a. 35 to 50 pound backpack on all of us and we had to run away from panthers uh some of us would get caught if 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 you know the ones that were wearing the backpacks i see you looking first. at me you don't yeah, worry just, about it just some of us yeah so so yeah that that backpack or the collar is kind of like that backpack and uh we don't want to weigh them down too much gotcha and we've even speculated that the only reason we killed those birds is because they might have been slowed down. <laughs> They're the slowest <laughs> birds in the covey. Yeah. I think we killed ours as a single, though. Yeah. I killed mine as a single. Mine was part of another covey, which was neat to see. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, anyway. Uh, so, what about the bands? Is, well, okay. Is every collared bird banded and vice versa? Every collar bird is banded, but not every banded bird is collared. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Is that though? Is that to do with a weight issue, or just amount of collars that you have, or like what, yeah, what determines that cost? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, for sure. Yeah. They're, they're two hundred dollars a piece. The, the the radio tags. So that's why we wanted them back from. Yeah. You. Turn uh, turn those back in, guys. <laughs> yeah. Please turn them back in. Um, and we can refurbish them, even though you, your pellet might have crimped a you know, a mm-hmm. den in it or something, we can refurbish it for half the price of a, of a new tag or a new collar. So, gotcha. uh, okay. Yeah. That's we can refurbish and basically just replace the battery and, and the casing. So are the goals of the banding project and the collaring project different? I mean, obviously you can't telemetry all the banded ones, but what's the primary goal of banding? We yeah. started banding a few yeah. years ago before this project, mm-hmm. um, and the goal of that was to kind of give us an idea of what harvest was looking like on some of these properties, um, kind of a mark recapture um, study, and kind of help supplement some of the bird monitoring that we were doing. So gotcha. still kind of going along with that some, uh, just expanded it so that we can then see where these birds are moving, and um, like Jane said, some of them are collared and banded some of them are just banded some that's weight issues some of it's because we don't want to put all of our bands in one basket basically and, gotcha. and kind of move those collars around since we're limited to the number of collars being put on property sure so a question i get a lot is what i mean if we didn't hunt the birds what's kind of an average survival rate well like years How, what's the life expectancy that's what i'm going for kind of average <laughs> Yeah, so it's a couple ways to think about that. Annual survival is is about twenty percent. So even once a bird makes it to an adult, it, it only has about a twenty percent chance it's going to survive the following to the following oh, okay. year. So when you think about the life expectancy of, you know, across all life stages, it's it's closer to nine months that you know they're going to wow. make it. So it's um not a, not a high rate. Yeah. 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 Two-year-old birds are pretty old bird. Um, yeah. I think the maximum that we know of is six years they had a colored bird down at Pineland. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, Whoa. That's a, a very rare bird. Um, but, yeah, uh, if they make it past a year, they're doing pretty good. So a question I have is um, with the banding itself, when you go back year year to year, um, are you you're hoping I'm, – I'm assuming you're hoping to catch the same bird more than one time. So that you can get, um, I mean, with the radio collar, it's obviously going to be easier to to track their mm-hmm. movements. But I'm assuming the only way to to know anything about a banded bird is to catch them more than once, or have a hunter harvest right. them. Yeah, uh, most of them are being hunter harvested. Okay, and so that kind of gives us an idea of again number of birds harvested. 
Um, and then if we catch them again the next year, which we do catch a few, um, we've had a couple of birds on each property be caught the following year. I'm sure that's got to be exciting. It is. I, we enjoy that. And then I've had a couple of, I think I've had two birds harvested that was their second year um, being banded. So not very many. Whoa, cool. So those are pretty special. Um, so that's kind of the two ways we see those come back around is harvest and then recapturing. That's cool. Have you seen, I mean, is there any interest in kind of like monitoring small game hunts for predators during the season? Like, is that an interest of you guys? Like if we could collect data on like pot, how many possums and raccoons were taken off of a property or what? I mean, well, let's go back. What are the main threats to quail as far as because you hear people talk about coyotes and bobcats and i just don't think it you know i'm just like eh. i'm not those possums would, and raccoons that's I, the ones you i would say nest predators i would guess would have more of an impact than than anything catching a live quail but well, what what, what do you categorize the predators into you know nest predators um possums raccoons armadillos rat snakes mm. then you get into some of your larger um these are predators you're um, raccoon, I mean, excuse me, bobcats and foxes and coyotes kind of way down the line. Um, and then your winter predation is going to be more of your hawks. Mm, so yeah. That's kind of, you kind of have to separate those out by time of year. I don't think I'm missing you, Doug, James. No, you owls. hit the main, main guilds. Or owls there in the hawk category. Yeah. They do. Yeah. They're, um, they do catch some, but not near as much as like Cooper's hawks. And, yeah. Um, the big one. If you just think about when hawks are mainly active, I mean, excuse me, owls are active. Yeah. You know, most of the, when bob whites have become sedentary in the evening. So mm-hmm. it's when we see most of the owl predation is when they're feeding young. Hmm. And, and so that's when we get some owl predation spikes. Gotcha. So if you were to like, y- y'all don't stay concerned about bobcats and coyotes, really? Not really. They get trapped some on some of the properties that are doing predator management, mm-hmm. um, but we're mainly targeting those nest predators or the right. possums, raccoons, and yeah. And that's what we recommend anybody is get the habitat in place so they have cover. Um, that's the main part of predator management is reducing predator habitat and improving quail habitat. Oh, okay. Especially on the cover side of it, and then you get into some of the trapping um, and that nest predator management is. Yeah, secondary to that. I'd be interested to see, like, at the check-in stations on public land, be like, how many raccoons did you take today? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, that's that's a good kind of lead into also to uh, you know what what is something that the average person can do to help um, quail conservation. Let's say they've got a hundred acres or so, and they want to they enjoy, really enjoy quail hunting and they want to make it as as quail friendly as possible what would what would that entail if if you guys could kind of give just a like a a basic rundown of like what what are some good things they could plant what are some good ways they could manage their timber what's a good way uh you know to to control that predation pred, yeah predation yeah i think the first thing is kind of 100 acres is a little small for quail long term management for sure. But it depends upon your landscape. Mm-hmm. So if you have 100 acres next to somebody, you know, several hundred acres or a 1,000 acres around you that is doing management, you have a really good chance of having a good quail population and maintaining mm-hmm. that. Now, if you're sitting up in North Georgia and you've got 100 acres, you're probably not going to be able to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, put some pen birds out or something. But uh, for wild birds, it's a whole lot of landscape context. So what's around you and then the acreage you have. But I always encourage anybody, no matter what acreage you have, go ahead and do that management. Um, you can see some benefits if you've got birds in the area. Um, if you've got timber, thinning that down to about uh, 50 square feet of basal area average mm-hmm. in there. So anywhere from a 30 to a 70 is when we trigger thinning. So we, what we're trying to do is put a lot of sunlight on the ground. Right, okay. right. So if you were to step into a pine stand at noon, you want to see about 60% of the ground being covered in sunlight. Gotcha. And that's to grow all the nice weeds and shrubs and things that quail need to survive good cover. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you knowing especially here in South Georgia or in Georgia in general, we have a lot of rainfall, so things are going to grow when you put sunlight on the ground. So the next step to that then is burning on a regular basis. This area involved with a lot of fire regularly, so every year to two years, the landscape burned. Mm. So that's what we need to mimic is about an every two-year cycle. Okay. If you go past about two years, then you're going to really lose the habitat. You're going to have sweet gums or water oaks or whatever. Oh, yeah, come yeah. In and Hardwoods yeah. are going to yeah, start blackjack. What they call yeah. blackjack and yeah. pin oak. Yeah. Yeah. It's not yeah. really those things. It's a lot of water oak. <laughs> a lot of water oak. Sweet gums and water It's funny how the names, like the very local names for stuff, and then yeah. you start reading like conservation literature and you're like man they're not naming any of the stuff that we have it's like oh no that's just what we call it here but that's what you want to maintain that is um and that's where folks can really um yeah because the general i read general recommendations of like the three four year cycle but you're saying because of our rainfall averages we really need to be two years max yeah and if you have really heavy sandy soils you can probably push it into a three year depending on where you're at. So, um, but pushing three years around here, you're going to be oh, you'll be up and you know. a six foot, seven foot dog fin on. Yes, right. Yeah. As, as far yeah. as timing of burning, like as, with specifically for quail, like when, when would be the best time to burn during the year? It depends on what you're trying to do in your stands. Um, mm-hmm. You can burn at any time of the year, but uh, if you're trying to control hardwood competition, and maybe stimulate the growth of grasses, then you want to burn during growing season. So late March through October. Yeah, yeah. Plantation um, burning season. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, any other time that you're dormant season burning, that'll help reduce some of the um, the buildup on the ground and um, stimulate some of the forbs and stuff to grow. So I like to see kind of a mix of them dormant and growing season burns kind of oh, okay. across the landscape so kind of but, break it up into when you okay i've heard of the patchwork approach or right. the, whatever they call it what are those patches i mean what size of patch are you talking about like 50 acre patch 100 acre mm-hmm. patch you know 50 50 okay 50 or less is ideal okay mm-hmm. but you can get, get can get too small as well and then if you get you know like a, you're burning an acre you really don't get fire intensity by the time it's gotten across the other right, side of the acre. Right, right, right. So you're not doing a whole lot. Since but, if, so but if you had that 100 acres, maybe a lease or even, you know, privately owned, would you break it into like 25, like four 25 zones and kind of yep. rotate those yep. out? Yep, that would be ideal. So you're, you're checkerboarding that and yeah. alternating. So you're leaving cover on the ground is what you're doing. Because mm. quail have to kind of use all of that spectrum of habitat it's not just like it, i mean correct me if i'm wrong there's not just something you can point to and be like that's what quail use it's like yeah yes but also <laughs> that over there and that over there yeah yep. so there's some we we call that plasticity there's some plasticity there mm-hmm. um and you think about when you burn something there's no typically there's not gonna be any cover there for a while so right. you, you you have to have adjacent refugia so that they can survive until that greens up so mm. when you burn too big a blocks they have to go too far to to find gotcha they're gonna cover leave, and end up leaving so the area leaving the, leaving the area but they if they and if they don't leave they become you know prey items for cooper's hawks for sure. example right gotcha. you know, like this time of year if you burn really large blocks the cooper's hawks are migrating through uh yeah. this time of year i just saw one outside my window about an hour ago so it uh it's that time of year they're heading back north I, those migratory ones are the the ones that get them because like with chickens if you keep like uh yard chickens mm-hmm. your your local like red shoulders are just like they know they're there they may take a chicken every once in a while but when the mm-hmm. migratory pair you know when they start coming yeah. through it's war on chickens yeah that's right. And pigeons. Well, I, I keep pigeons and oh, the same yeah. thing happens. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, um, how's the banding collaring going? I mean, I know you're not ready to share results. Do you feel like we're learning something? I mean, is it 
Are you guys excited about it? Or you're like, oh man, we gotta check and do all this stuff. And... I'm excited about it. Kara may not be. She's the one having to do all the work. I'm very excited. Yeah, this session in particular has been going really well, and that has been very uplifting. Um, because like last season, it was my first time doing it, and, and I was like, man, like some of these properties are not getting hit as well as others with their quail numbers, and I am absolutely blown away by how well everything is going this chopping session so we've been having a blast <laughs> that's awesome cool. yeah yeah well, so what would you what would you like what i got a question i have is like you guys obviously put a lot of work into this project and so when someone like me or sam comes along and like harvests one of the birds that you've worked hard to ban and collar like what like and be brutally honest like what are your thoughts on that because yeah. ultimately oh, like I mean, it is like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a kind of a dicey. We're excited about it. Yeah. I mean, are you like, guys excited with us? <laughs> yes. Are you like, oh crap. Yeah. I, I, no, I we're these totally guys. We're going to, we're going to make sure yeah. that these guys never, never uh, draw another quota here. Again. <laughs> if, if you're running a short hair, we're really excited for you. Cause we know that's probably the only bird you're going to kill oh, all no year. Oh, <laughs> I'll agree with okay. that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we're going to get on it now, James. <laughs> no. No, I'm the German doll. You know, I'm yeah. I'm I'm German uh, affiliate. Uh, affiliate, <laughs> yeah. Adjacent German adjacent. I, I run, run Hungarian fin- dogs. I, I run French okay. dogs. Well, that's, that's almost as bad, but <laughs> yeah. We'll now I like to give uh, Dallas a hard time about short hairs. Uh, um, I feel no, like this is no, a, we, this is this is not the first time. That's been <laughs> oh been no, it's it's up. every week. <laughs> every week. Uh, no, we're really excited. I mean, as as bird hunters, we're excited anytime somebody legally kills a bird. I mean, that's, I mean, that's what paid for the research was a hundred dollars in some way or another, and and we're doing it for the hunters. And so, uh, there's no remorse on our end, really, that uh, the bird gets harvested again, assuming it's legal and assuming it's going to be eaten. But um, but it's data to us as a science perspective. Mm-hmm. So again we 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 value that information and we we encourage it and embrace it as long as it gets reported we're super excited about it as long as it gets reported we're good sure yeah. sure yeah. Okay. yeah yeah we've been I trying to one early season so i, I kind of had a mixed feelings like dang i killed one of the birds that we collared put all that work into but then i was really excited about it at the same time yeah, <laughs> yeah. i know it would be funny i would get like a text message from dallas of like a picture she'd be like i killed one of your birds <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> making tracking easier for us yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah really you can find this one and just drop a pin you can find him right here <laughs> at my house yeah <laughs> for sure yeah um yeah but so yeah, you guys I'm, hunt I'm, carrie you hunt I have not been hunting since I was a small child. I would go deer hunting a lot with my dad. And then when I got older, I kind of fell out of that. But I've always loved birds. And I understand the importance that hunting brings into this. Like I've eaten quail that hunters have harvested at the property that I'm at now. And it is, I mean, it's fun. It's enjoyable. Really good meat. Um, So, yeah. I'd like to get back into it, but I'm, um, I'm I'm not a very good shot. Uh, <laughs> I definitely came into conservation through hunting, but now I've got like uh, a mega bird feeder, just like this huge thing that I built out my back picture window. And we've got binoculars stationed and we're identifying songbirds and lamenting the feral cat population. And, mm. Cause we didn't, yeah. I, that was not mentioned in your uh, predator yeah, uh, list. How yeah. do you feel about the old feral domestic cat? Well, I don't know. Who's all going to listen to this podcast? Cat killers, uh, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> People who shoot feral cats. <laughs> um, no, no. Yeah, they're uh, a predator and, and and invasive, and I don't like them. I'll just I'll just say that. Yeah, they, they, I, don't I don't like them either. They wreak yeah. havoc. Yeah, they do. Um, that's probably the honestly. So I I didn't tell you guys, but I uh, I guide quail hunts, and we you know so it's a little bit it's a little bit different. We do we do conservation for quail, but it's a it's a canned hunt, so yeah, we're putting birds out. Um, and but still, like the the amount of cats that we have around is insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they come in waves. Like I live in Jackson County, Georgia, and 
I, we've lived there nine years, almost nine years, and went eight years, never hardly seeing a cat. And I think it was because the coyotes were controlling them. And then we had a mm. distemper outbreak, I think, on the coyotes. And now I'm overrun with feral cat. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, I don't like them. <laughs> yeah. I've seen bobcats stalking feral cats on the farm. Hmm. Yeah, like a huge... Yeah, like they're controlling. They're like, oh, you spilled over yeah. into my territory, and yeah. now you're a prey item. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't mess absolutely. with our local. Uh, yeah, coyotes and bobcats. I just don't mess with them. I let them go. But the the raccoons and the possums are about to get trapped up. <laughs> it, well, it's legal all year in Georgia now, right? right now. For yeah. private lands. Yeah. Private lands. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah, it kind of has been for a while. You just have mm-hmm. to have a permit, but, mm-hmm. uh, but it's just a. It's under your right li- just regular hunting license now, or. Yeah, you. Yep. Yeah. Raccoons mm-hmm. and possums are fair game. The possums are getting outrageous on our place. They are bold. They just eat cat food and dog food mainly. I don't see why they would go after a quail nest anymore. They just <laughs> any. I found one in my kennel. He had gotten in the automatic feeder. So that door that swings down, he crawled up in there, got trapped. And when I opened to refill it, he was just laying on his back, just like bloated (laughs) and lazy and just like, uh, shut the door. (laughs) You're letting in the cold air. (laughs) I had to like unwire it from the fence, dump all of it out. Cause it's not easy to get anything out of those. (laughs) And he like waddled. He just couldn't like he had gorged himself on food. Yeah. But anyway, they're not afraid of no, us anymore. Hundred percent. Sometimes when we're trapping quail, I'm sure Kara's seen a few in traps. They were everywhere this fall when we were trapping. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think they're just uh, like what is there like a predator boom or a nest predator boom because nobody's targeting them anymore. I mean, I don't know a lot of. I just they, don't they run across many hunters who mess with them. Yeah, fur prices aren't worth anything. Um, people don't eat them anymore, and then we just because of the changes in the way we manage the landscape, we created better predator habitat. So predator numbers went up for a lot of different reasons. So what is predator habitat? How do I know if I've got predator habitat? <laughs> I don't have quail habitat. The predators that we mentioned, the raccoons and possums, any, almost anything is habitat to them, which is, mm-hmm. that's basically the point Dallas was making is that, you know, raccoons and possums can live in Walmart trash cans. So, mm, right, you know, right. uh, it's totally blanketed the landscape. Gotcha. So even if, you cre- even if you create a patch of quail habitat, it's most likely going to be adjacent to or encompassed by a home range of a predator. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, it's hard to pay, it's hard to pay attention to, um, cause there's just so many moving parts to this. And I, I know y'all know better than anybody. It just seems like on one side, it's simple, right? You just burn <laughs> and thin, thin and burn, which is what I see happening on a lot of public land right now. And I'm really encouraged, yep. but uh, I love going to public land and being not confused, but it's like, where do we even start hunting? Everything looks good now. Used to, it was like, well, this little patch over here, we can concentrate on it because this over here looks like trash or you can't even get in there to run a dog. If a dog went on point in there, you couldn't get to him anyway. And Mm -hmm. now it's like, well, anything, anything is fair game (laughs) like here. And it, it's making the job harder, but I can see where properties, especially I'm hopeful like five years from now, it's going to be better than it was five years ago, you know? And the good thing about that sea of habitat is means there's more birds. Mm -hmm. You're likely to run into some birds in just about any spot you get into, which is a good thing. Yeah. Assuming you have the right dogs. Yeah, for sure. If you don't have those red setters. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's what you run? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. I, w- yeah. I would assume from the trash talk you're a pointer guy. Yeah, I would I assume that you had had something good that you were. <laughs> 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 See, 
Eventually, it all comes back around. <laughs> I've had pointers. I like pointers, but I James have has left the now. chat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, my red setters had a good year. A oh, good, good year. deal. Good deal. Mm-hmm. Do you yep. guys hunt? Do any? Do y'all hunt preserve any? Not, not much. No, sure yeah. don't. Um, I'm, I travel a lot to other states and all across the eastern half of the U.S. Um, during bird season, my wife made a comment the other day about I was planning my turkey hunting season, and I told her I said, "Well, I'll be here for the next couple of weeks," and she kind <laughs> of gave me a look like, "Well, you haven't been here since January." <laughs> yeah. Um, I know the so, uh, yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, so you know, I I, I work at it pretty hard to yeah. Find so, question for Dallas and James: Do you go to when you hunt out of state? Are you ever being like, "Ooh, Georgia, Georgia looks better than this"? Or you're like, "Oh, this is what we're trying to get to right here." <laughs> yeah. Is there a state yeah. doing it better? I mean, uh. It's, it's different. Um, yeah. It's kind of oh, hard okay. to compare because, like, go out west and the amount of acreage is just insane. You know, right, millions sure. and millions of acres. So it's kind of hard to compare that because they can tolerate pressure a lot better than we can. Definitely. Gotcha. So, you know, with our small blocks, you put 10 people on our 1,800 acres versus you put 10 people on a million acres. It's a big difference. Sure. Um, right. Yeah. And, we, and we've got some pretty areas. It's just it's different. Yeah. It's kind of apples to oranges. Mm. And a per on a per acre basis, it's more expensive to manage quail in the east because the rainfall that Dallas was mentioned earlier. So, um, we you know we have to disturb it more frequently, which costs money. Right. And the further you right, go right. west, that frequency of disturbance is less. The further you go west, and so it's yeah. you might can manage ten acres for what you can manage one in in Georgia. So it's Again, not a complete apples to apples comparison. Right. Um, just something that I just thought of. It, when we're talking about public land, has there been much consideration given to woodcock, or it's just like, well, they'll come through if they come through, and if not, if not, and you know, are we managing for woodcock? Or are we just like, ah, we're really just managing for quail, and hopefully they'll stop by, or <laughs> or what's yeah, the difference? What would you do differently if we were managing? Yeah, I would love to see us manage for woodcock, and I've actually been kind of trying to get our crew to do a little bit more here and there for woodcock and provide more opportunity. Uh, it's a lot of fun. But right now, there's no direct management. Um, mm. There's a couple of banding projects where they're collaring and banding woodcock. Um, it was Maine, University of Maine, that was doing this mm-hmm. study. I'm not sure who's doing it now, but they... Yeah, they're still doing that one. Is that one? So yep. I know some of the more north Georgia um, management areas, they've been trapping them, putting telemetry mm. on some of these woodcock to kind of gotcha. track their their movements and see what kind of areas that they're using. But, you know, with woodcock, you've kind of got to get into some of the bottoms and uh, a little yeah. bit different management. So Wet areas not, and the right yeah. soil types. And, uh, yeah, so soil Food sources. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on that same note, uh, I know – Georgia does have a few rough grouse. Um, and I know that's in a completely different style of management for them. Mm-hmm. But um, I did early this year or, or before the season started, I got a email from UGA uh, asking or, you know, mm-hmm. kind of oh, saying the that DNA they were, kids. Yeah, yeah, they were looking for yeah. uh, harvested um, rough grouse. Is that, is yep. that something that you guys are involved in at all? Or is that, uh, maybe some colleagues yeah. of yours. Yeah. I'm the PI on that project. Okay. Uh, Richard Chandler and I, and then Emily Rushton is the, uh, DNR. She's the rough grouse biologist. Mm-hmm. So she's being a counterpart to Dallas, but for rough grouse and wild okay. turkeys. But, um, yeah, we think there's around seven to 10,000 rough grouse wow. in Georgia now. Um, and which, you know, is, not a ton considering no. we talk about right, right, right. A, a big, big chunk of land. Um, but there's a, but, there's a misconception that there are no rough grout. You know, some people would, would maybe argue that they're, you know, because except they're, for they're, hikers, because they they're so hard time. to find. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, we, we, we have like 58 survey routes for grouse in North Georgia and we have acoustic recording devices that are listening for grouse mm, and, yeah. and they're there. They're, they're not like Sasquatch, but, um, uh, 
they they are few and far between but uh there are some diehard rough grouse hunters still left in georgia i don't grouse hunt much in georgia i, I go to michigan and several other mm, states yeah. but uh you know we we would love to increase the populations for the sake of the hunters and for just rough grouse in general and there's some movement heading in that direction, but it's, you know, unlike quail, because the respondent management in two to three years, grouse is going to take 10 to 20 because it just takes oh. that long. Is it really that fast for quail? Two to three years? Yes. Oh, wow. So there really is hope. Like if you have a little bit of land, you start managing, you could see some ROI pretty quick. Yeah. Yes. You've got decent rainfall, good weather. There you go. Yep. Turn awesome. How, well, yep. Have you figured out like, uh, kind of like a critical mass or threshold for like you need kind of this many birds really to i don't know yeah. not ma- i don't <laughs> want to say make it worth it um yeah but i know texas has done some studies about how like if you, if you build habitat and there's no birds there well there's no birds coming you'd have to like bring some pairs some mating wild pairs and kind of relocate them i mean so is there like a critical mass for that or do we feel like in georgia like (laughs) we have enough birds where if you make some habitat they're close enough yeah in in general you know there's exceptions to this most of georgia if you manipulate enough of an area you're going to get a response in a you know, it might not be something you go out there and find two coveys an hour in a few years, but it, they should show up and start to build a population. Uh, might not be as fast as you like, but it, it, I think that's pretty common throughout Georgia today. Now, that might not be the case 10 years from now. Uh, we don't want them to get to that point where they can't colonize habitat mm, that we right. create. But the critical mass question is is a tough one to answer. We think it's about 800 birds in a population you need for it to persist in perpetuity. So an immediate people's reaction to that is, my God, that takes a lot of land, but yeah, you don't have to. Five bird, or if you're talking about a bird an acre, that's yeah, an incredible yeah. amount. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but but the the that's not, you don't have to own it all, right? I right, mean, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, if you own 100 acres, it, it doesn't, quail don't read boundaries you know they don't, sure, sure. They don't right. have on x so it's the total landscape that has to add up to 800 acres or 800 birds right and so that might be 10 different landowners yeah. right of more or less continuous good quail habitat yeah. more or less you know where they can yeah. least go from patch to patch and sure. not within flight no distance. Yeah. within flight distance or, or ease of walk distance sure. yeah hmm. gotcha yeah um so I'm I'm curious about the actual trapping process and maybe Kara, mm-hmm. since you're you're heading that up, maybe you can you can uh kind of give us some insight, but like what's what's your basic like kind of step by step method of trapping, banding, collaring, all that? Like and how long does the whole process take and like what's a complete cycle sort of? Um, yeah. So what we do is when we get to a property, I like to take a day to just drive around and then drop pins as I'm like driving the UTV or the truck. And I'm looking for anything that looks like good quail habitat or, or decent cover at least. Um, so uh, I'm trying to think of some areas that I would like to stick it in. So young pine growth, that I'll offer some good like cover up top. I'll like stick a trap in there. If there's a bunch of like bunch grass around, like I could stick one there. Mm. Um, you know, low basal area pine stands, you know, stick a couple in there. And I basically try to cover the upland areas of our WMAs with traps. And so we have one property that is about 19,000 acres ish. And so we put a hundred traps on that property. Um, we, we cleared like almost 200 sites and then baited on those sites with the hopes of setting hundred traps. Mm, and right. then once those traps are on the ground, we cover the top of them with vegetation, um, 
pine works really well to cover the top and you want like the whole top covered you don't want it like hanging off onto the sides because you don't want the quail to feel like they're walking into just a giant hole in the ground right. um but you want it to be covered so that during the day there's some shade for them and it also decreases the chance of you know avians coming up and you know snagging some of them um if they see a lot of light they'll bounce up constantly and you know could hurt their heads mm, so right 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 you do all those as precautions to keep them safe um, and then once the traps are on the ground, we check them every day, at least for five days, um, at most 14, sometimes a little bit longer if we're not super close to our goal of, you know, collaring 50 birds, but we, we check them every night at sundown and it takes us as long as it takes us. And sometimes we work up the birds that night and sometimes we wake up early the next day. We gotcha. try to have them released, um, as early as possible. So we're not releasing them like midday with the sun right above everything and you know where there's a lot of activity so um but yeah yeah and for our seeds we like to do scratch and we've been mixing it with sunflower seeds because we realized that the quail really like that um (laughs) and then one of our properties lets us use milo i was gonna i was gonna say we at the at the plantation i work at we there's a lot of milo thrown out (laughs) yeah good bit of that um (laughs) So I was listening to uh, another podcast and these guys are hunting in like Kansas mainly for Bob Whites and they were just going on about this gangbusters day they had and was like, we've never seen coveys this big. And these were experienced hunters. This is not the newbie hunter podcast. These are guys who've been hunting for like 30 years. They're like, oh, these coveys were so big. We found eight coveys of like eight to ten birds and i'm thinking like okay the the coveys must be different out there because ours are like (laughs) enormous (laughs) like very few are y'all finding like was it was it different a while back has it changed or is or georgia coveys just different i mean we tend to we find like 20 30 birds at a time like in one covey and then the next always but like Early season. Consistently, we found larger coveys where yeah. we, on the public land that we hunt. Yeah. Fewer big the, coveys, not the, the, more Those small. big coveys of 20 and 30 is probably two coveys or two brews together. Hmm. So that, that would be like there's a, a French term for that. Yeah. A crit. It's called a creche. Uh, if you want. It's probably the first time you yeah. the French term on here. It's for, they yeah. got a French dog. <laughs> yeah, um, I got French Britney's. you French Britney. There yeah, you go. Epignol Breton. Um, Breton, right, finding crushes all the time. Yeah, them, that's right. Crushing <laughs> crushes. Get your t-shirt. There's a t-shirt. There Ebs crushing crushes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Yeah, uh, but um, yeah, you know, once a covey gets established, it's going to be around twelve to fifteen birds. Oh, okay. Regardless of state latitude. Gotcha. uh whatever uh so the the folks saying they see eight birds that might be because their eyesight starting to go a little bad um <laughs> oh, gotcha. they, just, okay. they just didn't have the chance to take their shoes off to count that high that's right yeah, yeah. Uh, um you know once a covey gets down to six or seven late in the year either from harvest predation they're going to join another covey mm. So you can actually see coveys that are maybe even larger at the end of the hunt season than you were at the beginning because there's been, quote, two coveys gotten together. Right. So covey size itself is not a very good metric of a survival or population size right. or, or whatnot. It, it's kind of a misleading indicator that people use, and it kind of can get you in trouble if, if you're okay. – But you it, know, is there but, a more scientific explanation of what constitutes a covey? Is it like one – brood of quit like that's the parents plus their offspring is that a covey or is it no not necessarily uh, okay. it's very it's complicated so broods can be more than one clutch of chicks or eggs so they okay. amalgamate amalgamate brood so you could have a brood that has two or three different uh or chicks from two or three different nests oh, okay. In it. okay and so that's just a function of how close the nests were together well, they, really. they're just, their ecology and behavior is such that they adopt chicks. So like if an adult <laughs> dies mm. that has chicks, most likely a, 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 another hen or even a male will adopt those chicks as well. 
and and that's how come they're able to persist even though they have low survival rates is their reproduction reproductive ecology is so complex and and very forgiving mm. uh, so you can go into the fall you can have some coveys that might have three or four broods represented in that covey um so it, it's it's not it's not a neat unit of of, of animals oh, okay. that, yeah right. it's, it's, you know it's a little bit more complicated than to me, a covey is what gets up when that you flush. That's about that's a very good way to look at it. Yeah, that's right. Them birds right there. Yeah, them birds. That's right. Covey of two, technically the smallest covey you can have. That's right. Exactly right. Yeah, I get where people report all the time that they flushed a covey, and I'm going to ask them the size of the covey. They'll say one or two birds. What? probably been the covey that's flushed already and that really wasn't a yeah. covey that's more yeah. individual birds <laughs> yeah yeah or they just they, they bypassed the rest of those birds that were scattered feeding or something yeah right, right. Uh, right. you can tell the kind of what's been happening on public land after the first couple of finds it's like mm, these birds have been hammered here or like oh nobody's really found these yet yeah <laughs> It, does, it takes only about three or four encounters, and they learn them, and they learn really fast. Oh yeah. And when the cover gets thin late in the season, they're going to get a little wilder. Gotcha. Too, so okay. Yeah. Interesting to know that we're probably harvesting birds that were born. I mean, more than likely, you're harvesting a bird that was born within the last that season. Yeah, eight, eight yes. months or so. Yeah. Gotcha. Because, mm-hmm. so like in February. I was talking to my dad the other day. We were going on kind of, you know, the end, our season goes out into February, and we were going on that, that last ditch in the season hunt. And he's like, yeah, when I was a kid, we quit hunting them by this time because they're starting to pair off and they get real hard to find or they're smart or whatever. I mean, what are they? what are quail doing right now? I mean, is we're out of season as time of the recording. Yeah. So, are they starting to pair off, or are they, you know, still covered up, or already paired and nesting? What's what's their yeah. typical activity, or is it Kara does it change? Kara can tell you what's going on with the birds she's tracking right now. So the site that I'm at, um, they're still covered up. A, a lot of them are covered up. Um, I accidentally. <laughs> accidentally flushed a covey trying to get to one of my other coveys um and that one probably had like 13 birds in it it was loud and terrifying um but (laughs) yeah they're they're still coveyed up there's um we've had some that are splitting and like joining other coveys and so occasionally i'll just have like one random bird that i'm tracking but it's not by itself like it's still with a group of birds Mm, um yeah so they've that they've not started pairing off quite yet yeah and you i might would... start hearing some bob white whistling soon but it doesn't mean they're pairing off they can bob white whistle even in the covey okay and yeah. then next week when it is supposed to get cooler next week and they're gonna be right back in their winter behavior mm. um and so they they won't start really pairing off strongly until april and then we might have some early nests in may and then peak nesting is second third week of june so that's something are, are they more temperature sensitive or like daytime hour like the length of the day sensitive like what has more effect on them length of the day that's oh, okay. the ultimate ultimate cue right gotcha mm-hmm. i know that's also true with chickens laying eggs they need that daylight so yeah, i didn't know right. if that was a I yeah, mean, we even though they're laying them year round. Yeah, yeah, it's still a factor. Yep. But um, yeah, it's a link to the day. We the the timing of nesting doesn't change much across the Bob White Range, with the exception of South Florida and Central Florida is quite a bit different. But hmm. our birds here in Georgia don't, you know, start incubating that much earlier than say birds in Indiana. It's because the length of the day is about the same. Gotcha. Uh, we just have a little bit more time. Can you, I don't know, if you can, if there is a way, you know, not everybody that listens to our podcast is a landowner. Uh, not everybody. Actually, one of the goals of why we started Everyman Upland is kind of break down some misconceptions that you have to have tons of money to get involved in upland hunting, and there's plenty of public land to kind of take advantage of. But as people 
come from the hunting world into a more conservation mindset, you know, they don't have tons of money. They don't have tons of land. What can they do, uh, from a state or UGA's perspective? Am I, is there space for us to engage in conservation? Yeah, we, we encourage folks to, um, get out there and, and volunteer for some of these projects, um, volunteer to do bird counts. There's a lot of different things that you can get involved with, engaged on public lands. Um, and then um, recording data and the harvest and all that's definitely a critical part of it that any hunter can. Um, right. Fill out in. your cards at the beginning and end of your hunt. Right. And yeah. accurately fill those out. Um, I see a lot of people that fill them out and then I'll go look and they post it on Facebook and what they posted on Facebook and what they put on the cars. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I see these things. Uh, Dallas is always watching. <laughs> yeah. Watching. Uh, and then another big thing, uh, we partner a lot with 12 Forever here mm, in the state. Right. They're a big partner for us. And um, so get involved in a chapter. There's more and more of those um, popping up every day. If you don't have one in your area, you know, you can reach out to them and get one started. But a lot of the money that the chapters raise goes back into managing our public lands. Gotcha. So those chapters get to make that decision. It can stay local for them. Um, so we've paid for um, burning, herbicide work, stumping of new brood fields, a lot of different things. The equipment, they've bought equipment and all kinds of stuff for us to do quail management work on a lot of our quail focal areas. And then some other areas, we've got a West Georgia chapter that's been planting shrub thickets on a, um, a WMA near them. So mm. those guys have been really engaged. And then they also help us put more biologists on the ground, which we could not do without them. Right. Farm bill, biologists and stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, so from a dollar standpoint, is that where the money is best being utilized for just as a, like if you were a hunter looking to donate to any organization, would Quail Forever kind of be the the most closely correlated to quail habitat, I would assume. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the one in our state is going to, that's going to be quail forever and okay. um, definitely tying to them. And then of course, you know, we have the, the Bob White license plate. Sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. Support wildlife. Yep. Right. So that tag is a lot different than some of the others. Others only like $5 of that fee goes into the organization for us. $20 of that comes back to our Bob White quail initiative which is what um, I'm in charge of. And we then put quail habitat on the ground, both on public and private land. So that supports our program as well. So it's a pretty easy one. You can show your support for um, for all wildlife putting that tag on your plan. Yep. Cool. I got yeah. one of those. Um, I'll, I'll add some to that if you don't. Yeah, sure. Go for mind. it. I would say, you know, folks interested in getting up and hunting, it's not as, I mean, it can be expensive, uh, but you know, I got my first bird dog. I was 21 and, you know, made nine, you know, like uh, $90 a week working you use that the... term loosely bird dog, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a short hair. Uh, uh, so yes. So, yeah. Yeah. Very uh, loosely. loosely. <laughs> uh, I made like $90 a week working at this university bookstore uh, and, and somehow I made it work. So um, it doesn't, ha you don't have to spend a ton of money on it. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, um, a lot of property that you get yeah, and tons of property. Yeah. Yeah. And the, we're fairly new to that and discovering just how much land there is to hunt. Yeah, we're not new to hunting, but public land has been a recent pursuit of yeah. ours. But yeah, and like I said earlier, I think it's getting better all the time. Mm -hmm. Um so, you know, there's that and then there's this I think the average hunter or it assistant doesn't understand that the DNR doesn't get any tax money directly from the state oh um, yeah i didn't understand and, that and yeah so some states say there's a there's a direct appropriations that the dnr gets from the state budget mm -hmm. uh, georgia does not to my understanding so every every dollar that the dnr spends comes from two main sources one license sales and uh the other is pitman robertson funds which yeah. is excise tax on firearms so 
if you want to support conservation, buy a hunting license, even if you don't hunt. And a gun. Go and right or go or buy me a box of four ten shells because you know, they're right. really hard to cut. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're just out there, you know. I bought I bought some the other day. They're twenty six dollars a box, and I was almost yep. fell out. And that that would be a very safe conservation bet because uh, you know you're not going to kill anything with a four ten. No. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. right. An hour set of four ten. You know, you're doing a lot of good conservation work right there. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But, so so in addition to the organizations that Dallas mentioned, is buying a hunting license or and a duck stamp and right and um, those kind of things help support agency. The agency does not. Your tax state tax dollars don't pay for Dallas's salary, for example. So, right, um, it's important that those other sources be maintained. Otherwise, we're not going to have these managers on these WMAs. Yeah, we'll be putting a link to Dallas's GoFundMe page yeah. for next year's salary. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, with that said, um, so Dallas, I don't know how much you know. I don't know if it's like a conflict of interest, so you could bow out if you want. Recuse yourself from the question if you wish. But, I mean, is there anything we could call, like, our local representatives or kind of put pressure? I mean, not like, you know, pressure, pressure, but is there anything we could be talking to our local representatives about uh, as far as initiatives or stuff we need to bring their attention to? Because I know it's not always at the forefront of their mind, but if enough of us kind of say, hey, could you – throw your support this way is there anything right now kind of that we could do uh just always um let them know if you think we're doing a good job gotcha okay that's important um because then that allows them to continue to support the work that we're doing if you don't think we're doing a good job or you think something else needs to be done then they need to hear that as well um and it's not just your local legislature you know we have a dnr board um, that makes a lot of the decisions as well. So if you, know, you reach out to the board or our headquarters or, um, but there's a lot of ways to engage that. And it's important for the voice, especially for small game hunters, mm-hmm. that voice is not always there. And sure. so you know, we gotcha. get overlooked because of all the deer hunters and even yeah. turkey hunters or whatever. So um, it's important for small game hunters to get out there and, and let um, the agency and our legislature know what you want to see and what's being done well and what's not. So definitely get involved. And when we have um, uh, the public meetings with regulation changes and stuff, there's another chance for you to either go to the meeting or email and mm-hmm. um, make your, your wishes known on that end of it too. It does get looked at. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's a, and that's a relatively free way to uh, really make a difference is just uh, respectfully, contact some people and say hey i th- I mean i personally want to thank you guys i think in our area and the and all the properties that i've been to in georgia it just keeps looking better and better i'm i'm very encouraged um i haven't been anywhere that looked worse than the year before that's a good thing <laughs> yeah the, it, it, there's nothing where i'm like well they obviously lost some funding and <laughs> things are going downhill <laughs> quickly here but uh it all looks pretty good to me Keep yeah, buying no. ammo and guns, and we can keep it doing. Yes. <laughs> All right. And license. Yeah. And yeah, license. Get an extra car. Right. Drive. Yeah. So if your significant other tells you you don't need another gun, you tell her or him, him or her, that I'm supporting conservation today. That's okay. Right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, Carrie, Carrie, do you have any closing remarks or thoughts or anything that uh, you could add to that? Yeah, I think that one of my favorite ways is to, or for people to help is just by simply also volunteering, like Dallas talked about. Like, it's always fun getting people out here and then help, like having people help us trap because you get a bunch of people who have never seen a wild quill before. And so it's really cool for them to be able to like, you know, hold that, well, like put a band on it and just get them involved in some way. It makes um, conservation seem more real and yeah. uh, like imminent and makes it seem much more important when you actually get to see like the fruits of your labor. Um, so I always encourage people to help out or, you know, share any information. You know, I'm, I'm of the generation where the internet and knowledge is just kind of like power. And so sharing good quality scientific information mm-hmm. on Bob White management um, and also stuff that Quill Forever does on social media is also valuable. Sure. Awesome. You know, get the word out. Cool. And uh, so if, if someone did want to volunteer, like what would be the best avenue to, to go about that? 
or if they had some free time, who who uh, I don't. You may not, nobody nobody or, may want may want to get out give out their personal contact information. <laughs> but like, how would what would <laughs> be a good way to contact uh, someone to to if you if you had time to to give? DNR yeah. has an opportunity to uh, sign up for volunteers, so there is something on our website. Um, they can always reach out to me, and I can put them in contact with someone. Um, I send folks to Kara all the time, and my email and all is out there, so it's easy for them to find me. Awesome. Well, yeah. As someone who was recently sent to Kara from someone else, yeah. uh, in fact, <laughs> yeah. we, before you guys got on here, we, or we realized that... Uh, I had just sent her an email uh, a day or two ago trying to volunteer, not knowing that she was going to be on the podcast today. So, you know, here we are. Here we are. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for taking the time uh, with us. Um, I hope you'll come back. If you have any updates, just holler at us. Our our listenership is pretty local to Georgia, and we always like to shine a light on what's happening here locally in our state and our region. So we, we thank you guys for your work. For yeah, sure. We'd like to definitely, definitely. We appreciate all the hard work and, and we, we, it goes, it doesn't go unnoticed. We, we've, for uh, sure. as hunters, we've definitely seen the, the fruits of your labor. So thank you guys. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you all. Well, um, we'll see uh, our listeners later. We'll hopefully, you know, have a good off season. We'll keep you informed throughout the summer. Thanks.